Our New Testament reading this morning is from Luke chapter 21. And he said, Beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and plagues. And there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. This is the gospel of grace. Have you ever felt like you're about to reach a tipping point? You know, you really usually don't know that you've reached a tipping point until you've gone over the point of tipping. You know what it's like when you're a canoe and um, you tump over in the canoe and you don't realize you've reached the point of no return until you're in the water. Our lectionary reading from Luke today is about the tipping point, a tipping point for Jesus and his followers, a tipping point for Israel. Now, before we move into the text, I want to take two points of privilege here. Um, Becky, thank you for not saying everything that my brother probably told you. <laughs> um, you know how brothers can be. Um, sometimes I'm surprised he's still my friend and, and, and my best friend. The second point of privilege is to give a shout out to Richard Groves, uh, your pastor some 40 years ago. While I've never been a member of uh, Lakeshore, this community has been a part of my spiritual journey. Forty years ago, I was a missionary journeyman in Kenya, and as the Southern Baptist Holy War was just starting, I was receiving every week in the mail Richard's sermons, mailed to be by my brother. And those sermons were from this pulpit they were a breath of fresh air to me, a 22-year-old living in a slum in, in Nairobi, trying to make sense of what it meant to be a Baptist at that time. So it's, it's an honor to stand here in this place. Thank you for inviting me to be here. As we come to the end of the church year and as we move into the season of Advent and, and the renewal of the year from the angle things that Christians worldwide 
will be reflecting on. It's good to take a reckoning of where we are. The readings today invite us to do that. Now notice though that the readings, one was utopia and one dystopia. How does that perhaps link here? Isaiah, certainly the visionary, as Rebecca talked about this, um, Megan, sorry, right? So the, uh, the envisioning something, so Isaiah's envisioning something. Jesus' words in Luke's, Luke are, are quite different. The reading does take us to think about a clear-eyed and sober reckoning. The readings address the issue of collective loss, collective defeat, national catastrophe, the destruction of the highest goods of the nation, and in a real sense, the threat of the erasure of a people. The context of Isaiah 65 is the aftermath of Israel's destruction by Babylon, Israel without Solomon's temple, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, gone, lost. Yet that destruction was not the end of things, it was not the end of the story for the Jews. In the Lucan drama, we are drawn into Jesus' final encounter with the temple, placed in the narrative shortly before his execution. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record Jesus entering Jerusalem in an orchestrated, in a public way, and then going directly to the temple where he engages in civil disobedience that threatens the Sadducean oligarchy, allied as it was with the empire of Rome. The result was predictable. Before his arrest, Luke, and Matthew and Mark say that Jesus is now back in the temple where he is teaching. When some of you were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Now, a footnote here, okay, so you're, you're aware, and I think most are aware, that the writer of Luke had 20-20 hindsight at that point, right? So the writer of Luke is writing about a decade after that temple was gone. So it had been destroyed by that time, so that's the end of the, the footnote. As you know, Jesus' words about the destruction of the temple in Luke 21 follows his action recorded in Luke 19, where he enters the temple, declares it a, a den of gangsters, and drives out the cashiers. To make this political point more obvious, Matthew and Mark provide the story of Jesus' cursing of the fig tree, interwoven with the temple experience, cursing the fig tree and then seeing the tree wither and die. Their point is that Jesus condemns the temple like he condemns the fig tree. Both the temple and the fig tree are subsequently destroyed. New Testament scholar Marcus Borg has argued that Jesus' words and action were equivalent at that point to a draft dodger 
going into an army recruiting office during the Vietnam War and burning his draft card. Though this was not a cleansing of the temple, as sometimes labeled, but rather a symbolic destruction of the temple. Like Rosa Parks' refusal to give up her seat on a bus, like Gandhi's march to the sea, a re reaction from the authorities was guaranteed. And if we want, and, and I want, I do, perhaps you do also, we can explore the words and actions of Jesus regarding the fall of Israel in the first century is similar to what's going on perhaps for us today in America. In fact, it seems to me that the lectionary reading, which I didn't choose, by the way, invites us, begs us, coerces us, makes us think about this, think about how we might make inferences and perhaps also it will provide some guidance for us in 2019. Now, the last time I looked, uh, Lakeshore is still a Baptist church. <laughs> I say still, and you laughed, right? So I say still a Baptist church because you're no longer Southern Baptist. You're no longer affiliated with the BGCT. You have taken important stands in this regard. Now, some of you in the room were Southern Baptists. I won't ask you to raise your hands. <laughs> and today, of course, we're all aware that the leadership and laity of many in many Baptist circles have taken a Sadducean approach and forged an alliance with the political powers so that they can advance their religious agenda and their cultural agenda, an agenda that you largely have rejected. Like Sadducees in the first century whose high priest controlled the temple, the evangelicals of America have made a deal with those who control the levers of power. Like the Sadducees who are getting something from Rome, the evangelical priorities are being leveraged in ways that demand that we take stands, maybe like stands that Lakeshore has taken in the temple. Dare we imagine that the first century American church, like the first century children of Israel, those chosen ones, those people who were called the kingdom of priests, a holy nation, that the first century, 21st century American church might experience the days when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Perhaps, as for first century Jews, such imaginations seem unspeakable or blasphemous or just crazy. But are they? What if the demise of the American church is possible? Are there signs around us that it is even likely? And so we ask, like Jesus' followers, ask, teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? When Jesus' followers ask him about the tipping point, 
Jesus admits he, he doesn't know the answer to that, and I suppose we don't know the answer to that either. But Jesus says in this moment, when all around you there is chaos, when all around you there are wars and insurrections, do not be terrified. Of course, in some sense, Americans are not terrified of war. We've been at war for 20 years now with Afghanistan. If you're 18 years old or younger, you've not known in America, not at war. Well, we, we may not, because we're in this strong empire, we may not fear or be terrified of war. Many of us in this room have fear. We have anxiety about the state of things. Some of us have turned off the news. Insurrection has arrived in the form of alternative narratives, alternative facts, bending of the norms, breaking of the norms, the encouragement of lawless behavior. We are not in Kansas anymore. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified. Jesus advises us not to be afraid. While our first instinct may be to panic or depression, our faith demands something else. Of course, for Jesus and his followers, it gets worse. Perhaps so for us. They will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to prisons. You will be brought before governors because of my name. The way of Jesus here is costly. It's not cheap. And these words have relevance perhaps for us here in Waco, Texas. Lebanese Christian poet Khalil Gibran says, I go as others already crucified have gone. And think not we are weary of crucifixions, for we must be crucified by larger and larger men between greater earths and greater heavens. And so we are invited to take up our cross and follow. Jesus says the chaos, the war, the insurrections, the injustice, the violence, this will give you an opportunity to testify. He calls on us, you and me, to bear witness, to stand still without fear while the world around us devolves, devolves into insanity. He calls on us to bear witness, to testify. Lakeshore joins those who are doing this now. We are called in now and in the immediate days ahead to join the ranks of those who have played this role before us. And I don't suppose it will be easy. And I'm not sure what the cost will be, but we will find out. Jesus says to his followers, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends. You will be hated, strong words but not really that hard to imagine. Not at Lakeshore. 
Perhaps not since the Civil War in America have we seen families and friends so divided. Some of your Baptist brothers and sisters are not happy with you. While I'm not suggesting that those of us in this sanctuary this morning are immune to our partisan blindness or of our human proclivities toward tribalism, I've talked to enough of you in this room to know of your grief and your sadness about what's happened. And I know of your thirst for justice and your determination, your resolve to stand up in this moment. Your words and deeds have put some of you into situations that are not comfortable, to say the least. What will Thanksgiving dinner be like for those of you who share that with a group of friends or family? Perhaps we're forced to compartmentalize in order to get through that celebration in a hospitable way. You know, maybe somebody spikes the punch for us. Or, yeah, <laughs> yeah, on second thought, maybe that's not a good idea. Um, <laughs> I've lost some good friends recently. Some of you have as well. Some of us are avoiding close family, friend, family members. This is where we are. This is where we are right now. Our scripture reading this morning is a call into this moment of dis-ease. How we move into this moment in which we may be ostracized, betrayed, even by those we have known, I know, is fraught with moral, professional, civil ambiguities and complexities. We, of course, recognize how careful we must walk, but we are being called nonetheless. Note that Jesus' challenge to his followers also comes with an assurance. As his followers face with courage the challenge of the erosion of the stones that for them seemed impermeable, fixed. He says to them, I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand. Our testimony, our witness must be wise. It has to be. While we may not know ahead of time what we will say or how we will say it, the logos, the truth, will be with us. And this is not an untested protocol, this walking into this sort of unknown. We have recent examples of Baptists like Martin Luther King Jr., Howard Thurman, Will Campbell, Walter Rauschenbusch, Muriel Lester, who have testified, knowing full well that they could lose relationships, that they might even face threats to their well-being. We have recent examples of Christians from other fields, denominational cousins like Oscar Romero, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Maximilian Kolbe, and of course we have allies in other religious traditions like Gandhi, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Dalai Lama, who face empires and speak the truth to power. While the stones may be thrown down, the Lagos will remain. So this protocol has been tested. 
I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand. In our time of reckoning, at the end of this church calendar year, during this season of chaos and confusion in our national life, our scripture provides realistic sobriety and yet strong assurance to each of us. Like Jesus, we can know exactly, we cannot know exactly where the tipping point is. Perhaps we've already passed it. Regardless, we stand at the ready without fear to walk steadfastly into this moment with the knowledge that the wisdom of Jesus will shine on us, in us, and through us. Lakeshore Baptist Church, I'm grateful to you for you have been and you are now and you will be what you must in these days and the days to come. This is your time. May the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you, O oh God, this day.